You are listening to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. This is Michael Litchens with you once again, your faithful editor of CatholicExchange.com. Today I'm happy to have Thomas J. Nash, who is the author of the new book, The Biblical Roots of the Mass. We're going to cover a lot of things regarding the Mass. This is especially a good podcast if you have questions about the biblical basis of the Mass or you want to talk to your Protestant friends, so do be sure to listen. Thomas has served for the Church for 20 years. He's been a guest on EWTN, an advisor for EWTN as well, and has directed special projects for the Catholics United for the Faith. So, Thomas, it's great to have you here today. Michael, it's good to be with you and your audience. Thank you very much. To start us out today, can you tell us a little bit about the your new book, The Biblical Roots of the Mass? Yeah, it's come out in, in, a, in a new edition, and it's just I'm really blessed to have Sophia Institute Press uh, publish it. Uh, basically, what I've tried to do, I, I in doing The Biblical Roots of the Mass, I think that a lot of people, when they come to the Mass, or what's a stumbling block to them, is this whole sense of the sacrifice of the Mass. So I didn't so much get into the liturgy of the Word and some of the prayers regarding that and in the offertory, but the heart of the Mass, which is the sacrifice of the Mass. That's why we talk about offering the Mass or the sacrifice of the Mass, uh, the Eucharist, that being offered. And so there are oftentimes when people think, so wait a second, isn't that just a symbol? Is it, the, is it the real presence of Christ? And it's like, well, gee, how can it be a sacrifice? Didn't Christ, you know, wasn't it once for all? And, and you know, mm-hmm. Catholic, so you think that you're killing him again and then he's somehow rising? I mean, it's as if you don't think what he did was sufficient. And I say, well, no, it's not that we don't think he's what he did is sufficient, but rather, to take another look again, I would charitably say to them that I would say they don't have uh, their their view of his sacrifice is too limited. And what I mean by that, you remember that old Hallmark saying, the gift that keeps on giving? Well, the Mass is par excellence, the gift that keeps on giving. If we realize that the sacrifice did not just begin and end on Calvary, but in fact culminated into everlasting glory when Jesus Christ entered a sanctuary, not made by hands, but into heaven itself, offering himself to the Father on our behalf, and in heaven there is no time, it transcends time, that sacrifice is ever before the Father in heaven, and we can talk about that, then it's like, wow, you know, heaven and earth can come together. You know, and they talk about that, that old song uh-huh. <laughs> that says, you know, we want to make heaven a place on earth. Well, I'll tell you what, thy kingdom come, <laughs> thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those great words from the Lord's Prayer. Nowhere, Michael, are those words of the Lord's Prayer more profoundly fulfilled than in the Mass because what the Mass is is our window on to eternity. We get to be face-to-face in that heavenly sanctuary with our Lord and not simply be there and participate in that one offering, but to partake of it, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. If people can realize that this is our window onto eternity, that we are with the Father and the Son, that we are with the Son, with Him. What's new at every Mass is not that Jesus is dying, but rather what's new at every Mass is our participation. That's what's new. It's the one sacrifice made present under, we say, the sacramental forms, of bread and wine. I'm glad there's books out there like yours on the Eucharist, because that, as a someone who converted to Catholicism, was always a question we had. Especially that was the big stumbling block when I was coming in. So, what would you say is a good introduction? Like, what would you say is a good way to say to someone who wonders, well, where is the Eucharist in the Bible? Yeah, I would say we can talk about the Gospel, John six. First yes. of all, let's talk about the real presence. Is it a symbol? Is it not? Well, 
We can talk about John 6. Even before that, we get to John 6. Well, no, let's, let's start with John 6. People say, it's, it's a symbol. Eat my body and drink my blood. When Jesus tells that to the people, he means it figuratively. It means, hey, Michael, just partake of my word, mm-hmm. accept my word, and you will have eternal life. The problem is we can't take our 20th or 21st century view from America or wherever we might be in the 21st century and impose it upon the Bible where we say, well, it's got to be this because that's how we understand it. We've got to go back to the context, and it was a Hebrew context. And so when they heard those words, you look at John 6, I think anybody who's dispassionate, say they're not a Christian at all, no dog in the fight, so to speak, and they look at what's going on there in John 6, they will say, wow, these people, they said, this is, you know, how can, he, how can we have this man's flesh to eat? And so Jesus doesn't say, oh, let me correct you on that. No, he, he, makes, he speaks more um, explicitly, you know, and, and, and he spoke Aramaic, but the words of the gospel are in Greek, and mm-hmm. so we, the word becomes trogo, which means to gnaw or to chew, and it's like, whoa. And he goes, you know, your fathers ate manna in the desert and died, but he who eats my flesh will live forever. Oh. And at one point they're saying, this is a, this is a hard saying. It's too yes. much. And, and they laughed and said, wait a second. If, if he's speaking figuratively, why didn't Jesus correct them? Why didn't Jesus say, wait a second, wait a second, guys. You know, <laughs> you got it all wrong. I meant it figuratively, you know, kind of right. like, a, um, you know, I am the vine, I am the door. You know, come on, I'm not really a door, I'm not really a vine. I mean, in a sense, you've got to be abide in me and live in me. Well, no, stay on, and here's the key. When people want to take a literal, uh, figuratively, in fact, the figurative meaning of eat my flesh back in the day, back in the Hebrew day, meant to revile someone, to slander someone. If you look at, and that's what I like about the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition, you look at Psalm 27, mm-hmm. 2 is to eat up my flesh. Those who slander me, those who revile me, those who wish me death, um, that's what eat my flesh is. So we plug in the figurative meaning, not as we would say in the 20 or 21st century, now we're in the 21st century, but as it was understood then, it's basically saying, he who hates me, he who slanders me, he who wants me dead has eternal life, which makes Jesus look rather dumb. And, of course, he's not, Jesus is anything but dumb. Right. So they think, well, it can't be figured in that sense because they're kind of between the proverbial rock and a hard place. In this case, it's the rock of Christ and building the rock of the church. But that's another thing that we will root to the church. We can talk about that another time. But <laughs> the, thing, the thing is, is that they're between that proverbial rock and a hard place because, well, gee, we know it can't mean... Um, we, he, he's not being figurative because that would make him look dumb. You know, he eats my flesh, uh, he mm-hmm. reviles me, has eternal life. And and boy, this other thing is, gosh, if he, if he means it literally and he keeps saying it and he's not correcting us, that's difficult because we're prohibited from drinking blood of sacrifice. We're not, we're not supposed to have any blood because that will cut us off from our community. And they, they, that's why they could not partake of the blood in the uh, temple sacrifices if they did that because... It was to say, when you, when you did that, it was like saying, you know what, this is the blood that's offered. It's like saying either two things. Either A, I don't think um, I have any sins that need to be atoned for, or B, sometimes sadly, they would partake of the blood of goats and calves. Like, I want to be the, the strength of a goat or an ox. And so they would partake of it, and they'd, they'd go down to the level of a beast and get involved in pagan sacrifices. Oh, wow. Um, and that's not a good thing either. So, they, But the bottom line here is, to be clear, is they... They understood him to be speaking literally. He did not correct them. And then, so they go away, and Jesus doesn't say, hey, you know, come on back, guys. Again, they would be cut off. What he's saying to them is, you know what? I am this new Passover lamb. 
And if you mm-hmm. partake of me, even though you'll be cut off from the old, you're going to be fulfilled. I'm not abolishing the old in a negative sense. I'm coming to fulfill it because I am that new Passover Lamb of God. And guess what? In the old Passover, not only did you partake of the Lamb, excuse me, not only did you sacrifice Lamb, but you partook of it. That's what we see in the, the great movie, The Ten Commandments, right? They, yes. Uh, the, 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 they, they, they partook of the flesh, and the, and the angel of death passed over, passed over them and uh, for those who had the, the blood on the lintels of their house and the door frames, the doorposts, um, the frame of the, uh, the doors of their, uh, of their homes. And so Jesus is saying, I'm that new Passover lamb, basically. And he says to them, will you, you know, do you want to leave too? And Peter says, to whom shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. And we see, too, that that Passover lamb, Jesus, you know, it says in John 19, it says about break none of his bones. They made sure he fulfilled the passage. Where does that come from, break none of his bones? Well, that comes from that Old Testament uh, guidelines for the Passover in Exodus 12, the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. In Exodus 12, among other things, you know, you took a lamb and it had to be unblemished, you know, no marks. Well, Jesus fulfilled that because he is unblemished in the most important sense, no sin. Then also, break none of its bones. That was the thing you were were to sacrifice if that animal died, but you did not break any of its bones. And they fulfilled that prescription with Jesus. They didn't break any bones. They said, wow, Jesus, he's that... He's this new the Lamb of God. He's the new Passover Lamb. Wow. Oh. And then you see St. Paul saying, you know, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7 says, Christ our sacrifice, Christ our Paschal Lamb, Christ our Pasch um, has been sacrificed. It's like, whoa. So Jesus is this new fulfilled Passover Lamb. You know, break none of his bones. Okay, that's fulfilled. All right, he's unblemished in a more important sense. Great. St. Paul says he's been sacrificed for us. Okay, he's been sacrificed. Well, then why would we expect why wouldn't we expect that we wouldn't partake of them? See, the problem is some of the Protestant brothers and sisters are, I mean, our Episcopalian friends, Anglicans, would some of them believe in the real presence. Unfortunately, they're, they're uh, not to go off too far of a digression, but they wouldn't have valid uh, priestly rights. But the basic right. Protestant belief in various forms is that they don't believe in the real presence. And, and so it's like, wow, it, it becomes like grape juice and um, bread. <laughs> as a, and the problem is it becomes an anticlimactic fulfillment because in the past you had a sacrifice and you had you partook of it. Now it's just kind of purely symbolic, which is really an anticlimactic fulfillment to uh, in a new covenant sense if that's the case. But right. that's that's not what that's not what's going on. And that Jesus is that that new Passover. And we have other biblical um, citations to support it. Look at one Corinthians eleven. It's beautiful. Uh, and even before that, 1 Corinthians 10, you know, is this not a partaking of his body of blood? You know, we become one body. St. Paul speaks about it in 1 Corinthians 10. He makes a comparison that, you know, don't be like those people who partake of the table of demons, you know, sacrifices to the demons. So you're seeing, and the table that that's used there, the the, the Greek word, is, is, is not just, you know, simply table, but it's also altar. You know, talk about things that are being sacrificed. And if there are any doubt about it's a sacrificial or priestly offering context, what do we see in 1 Corinthians 11, where people who have partaken of the body and blood of Christ, what happens to them? Some have gotten sick and even died. Well, we know if we take a bread and wine, and they're purely, you know, just bread and wine, um, unless we, you know, ate them excessively, we're not going to get sick unless somebody puts them death-dealing additive like arsenic right. or something into it. We're not going to cyanide. We're not going to get sick. So what is it about that some people, because they have they have partaken of the body and blood of the Lord unworthily, and he 
confirms that the real presence. And you don't, why is this happening? Because people, it's going to receive our Lord in an unworthy fashion. And when we do so in a, in a state of mortal sin, God forbid, we basically eat and drink a judgment upon ourselves. So we see that real presence being affirmed right there in mm-hmm. 1 Corinthians 11. And, um, you know, there's other things, too, with the, the, the whole Passover, uh, the thing with um, the, the Last Supper accounts. You know, what is conspicuous by its absence, so to speak, is the fact that there is no lamb mentioned. And it makes perfect sense because Christ is that Passover lamb. But this, what's this whole thing about bread and wine going on there? It's like, why, you know, what's, this is, people think, well, wait a second, and this is where we see how all these, sacrificial threads, these various prefigurements come, all are fulfilled in Christ. Bread and wine, that's Melchizedek. Well, who's Melchizedek? Well, he's that, he makes that cameo back there in Genesis 14. Yes. And he brings up bread and wine. It's like, but wait a second now, bread and wine can't be a sacrifice? Well, yes, it can. You can look at Exodus and they get, you know, they offered bread, they offered cereals, they offered wine as sacrifices. Um, and, and um, you know, not to be too irreverent, but maybe on a lighter note, did you ever see the, the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I offer it in a few edits, but there's at one point where they start, and they did feast on this and that and breakfast cereals, and then he goes, you know, skip ahead, brother, where he's going through this litany about how, how various things were, were um, offered and partaken of. And we can say, not to be irreverently, but to, but to show in, in, a, in a legitimate sense that there can be sacrifices in which a victim wasn't killed. Now, Christ is that victim who died once and doesn't die again. Mm-hmm. But he, this sacrifice, what is a priest? What does a priest do? The letter to the Hebrews, what is the prime function of a priest, Michael? It's to offer gifts and sacrifices. Hmm. Offer gifts. I mean, that is the prime function, the right stuff, R-I-T-E, pun intended. Yes. When he does that, when he does that, back in Genesis 14, you're thinking, okay, this guy is a priest, he's a priest of God Most High. Well, if he makes this cameo back then, wouldn't you expect that if he's, that's a prime function of a priest, as we learn in the letter to the Hebrews, which also talks about Melchizedek, and that Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, hey, what does he do at the Last Supper? Bread and wine. We would expect that that Melchizedek, when he offers bread and wine, that that would be his signature sacrifice. And in fact, if he, that's what a priest does, You'd expect him to do that, and he brings out bread and wine. What does Jesus do on his appearances of bread and wine? He offers his body and blood, and he uh-huh. becomes a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So he fulfills not only the Passover sacrifice, he fulfills, fulfills the priesthood of Melchizedek. People say, oh, come on, come on. It's like, read Hebrews 5, chapter 5, verses 5 to 10. I think it's the most, I would call, the most profound passage of the biblical story of the Mass because it shows that, you know, Jesus, he, because of um, his obedience and, and uh, he suffered and all that, and then he dies for us and he became the source of eternal salvation, it says, and he was designated a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So we see that his priesthood is activated, uh, according to Melchizedek, is activated in light of his becoming the source of eternal salvation. Well, when did he become the source of eternal salvation? He does that on the cross, the sacrifice of the cross. What does the Mass do under the, uh, the priesthood according to Melchizedek, under the signs of Melchizedek? It makes that sacrifice present under bread and wine according to the order of Melchizedek. So we see mm-hmm. in that scriptural connection 
that the that the ministry that his that his source of eternal salvation that our ability to partake of that um, that salvation he won for us is going to occur through the order of Melchizedek under the appearances of bread and wine. And indeed, that's what doesn't Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And if you partake of my body and drink my blood, what? You will have eternal life, source of eternal salvation. How do we get that source of eternal salvation? It's activated in light of the priesthood according to Melchizedek. So we have access to that one sacrifice on Calvary, that one sacrifice of Calvary mm-hmm. by virtue, and we become present to it by virtue of the priesthood of, according to Melchizedek, which all ordained priests do, they act in persona Christi, with yes. the power and person of Christ. And so it's like, well, wow, okay, we can say that that occurs. You know, another thing, too, that that we, we talk about Passover, where we connect Passover to Day of Atonement, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, we, uh, is that when the ancient Hebrews, and this is good because, um, uh, well, well, we can say, you know, we're here in the summertime, and one of the things we, we celebrate in the summertime, Michael, is the 4th of July, and people say, yes. oh, what goes on with the 4th of July? Well, people dress up, and you got the fight from the bugle and all that, and maybe <laughs> someone's going someone's gonna to reenact the signing of the Declaration of Independence, but it's all just a, re- it's a recollection we make believe, but we don't come in contact with John Hancock and the boys, and, and back yeah. in 1776, yeah, not, we're, not, we're not transported to Philadelphia in 1976. The wondrous thing about when they did remembrance or memory or memorial in the Old Testament, it's, it's, as the ancient Hebrews would say, it's as if we ourselves came up out of Egypt, so that they believed that somehow that remembrance was drawing on the power of a past event and feeling its impact in the present, so that when they had the Passover sacrifice, even though you had a new lamb that was sacrificed every year, even though you had a priest who could only serve a certain amount of time, that they had access, that there was a trans-historical okay. reality that they could participate in, that we could that, that, that would impact the present. Similarly, we become present to the foot of the cross with Christ, but not that he suffers again, but that we are at the foot of Calvary, so to speak. Just as they were at that first Passover that led the people out of Exodus, we become uh, present in a mystical sense at the foot of the cross and, and, and experience his power in the present. But the beautiful thing is that with the new covenant, Christ, is, and it's because the sacrifice didn't just begin and end in Calvary, but culminated in the everlasting glory of heaven, that that sacrifice, we not only become present at the foot of the cross, but we're transported to heaven as well. Because what does mm-hmm. it say in the, the book of Revelation? It says, Jesus is a lamb standing as though slain. It's like, well, what does that mean? Well, he's standing because he triumphed over sin and death. He rose from the dead. He also ascended into heaven. And when he ascended into heaven... He, um, as they say, he, he uh, presents himself to the Father on our behalf, but he's also, he, because he was slain, he bears the marks of his passion and death. So you mm-hmm. would say that the passion and death, the whole of the sacrifice of Christ is transported into the heavenly sanctuary. He bears the marks of his passion and death, but he's standing in triumph because of his resurrection and ascension into heaven. And it's like, wow, so that sacrifice, is there any way that we can connect this with with salvation history otherwise with the biblical story of the mass is there a real connection and i'd say yes there is because not just the passover not just melchizedek that sacrifice but the day of atonement the day of atonement which is offered or, or commemorated you can't have it used to be it can strictly be commemorated in the sacrificial sense but it's still observed by our jewish friends every year 
basically in, in September as the calendar comes around. Okay. And what happens is, what happens is the Day of Atonement, what was, what was going on? Well, once a year, a priest would offer sacrifice for himself and for the people. He would slaughter a bull and a goat, and he'd not only slaughter it, but he would take the blood into the Holy of Holies. What was the Holy of Holies? Well, in the ancient Israel, you had, there was the temple. And in the temple, you had the courtyard um, that were just the men were allowed. And then you had the holies where you had the, the altar of incense. That was in there, and only the, you had the priests and Levites go in there. And then the Holy of Holies, which was the most intimate presence of God on earth, mm-hmm. where that was where the Ark of the Covenant. And you remember that movie, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Oh, yes. It's truly had a fine movie. Remember how Indiana Jones had, even though he wasn't necessarily a believer, he said, you know, don't look, Marion, when at the end of the movie where they came in contact with the Ark of the Covenant and the Nazis thought they were going to hijack it and, and use it for, uh, you know, advancing the Third Reich things and all that as if they can you know, manipulate God. Some have tried it over the years and you know, it mm-hmm. inevitably failed. But, they, he knew that you did not approach God irreverently. Right. So God is everywhere, we can say, but in Old Covenant times, he manifested his presence most intimately in the Holy of Holies. Similarly, he does that in the tabernacle today and at the Mass. You know, God uh. is everywhere, but we become present. I mean, this is the analog. So this really, we can learn from our Jewish brothers and sisters, or Hebrews, back in the day, Hebrew brothers and sisters, because they, that, they had a great reverence to God. Now we can so casually approach him. And, you know, people aren't necessarily going to die uh, when they, in a, in a strict physical sense, if they partake unworthily, but they can eat and drink a judgment upon themselves. And what's worse? It's kind of like uh, Adam and Eve back in the garden. The devil says, the serpent, surely you will not die. Well, gee, they didn't die right then and there after they partook. After, mm-hmm. you know, God said, don't partake of the, the tree of the knowledge of good of evil. But, ah, did they not die in a much more profound sense spiritually? And so they did, in fact, die. And then and, and we can put ourselves in a worse spiritual state if we partake unworthily. So what I would say then to this with regard to the Day of Atonement is that we see once a year the priest would go in and offer blood of goats and calves. If he did it irreverently, he would be killed. Oh, they wow. talk about putting a, um, a little rope around his leg so that if he did act irreverently, they would pull him out because only the priest and only once a year could he go in there. Anyone else would be killed. Priest outside of that day of atonement, he would be killed because you're you're basically trying to get too close to God when they were not in a good spiritual state to do so. In salvation history, it had not reached that time. So there was a profound reverence to drawing close to God. And so, but we see the two phases, right? You had to slaughter the animal. Say you were the high priest and I was your assistant. Say we slaughter that bull and goat. We say, you know what? It's a nice day for a barbecue, isn't it? and we go out and have our barbecue, we would not have completed the sacrifice. So there were two phases, the slaughter of the animal and the taking of the blood through the holies into the Holy of Holies and sprinkling the blood before the mercy seat of God, where you see the two angels that are perched apart of the ark, and there is God who is seated in his glory upon that in a spiritual sense. So we had to, you, the high priest, would have to sprinkle blood before the um, Holy of Holies, uh, in the Holy of Holies before the mercy seat and on the mercy mm-hmm. seat of God. And so, okay, we say two phases. It's like, okay, what does it got to do with Jesus? Ah, here's the thing. There are two phases because Jesus fulfills the Day of Atonement sacrifice. How's that? Because Jesus dies, uniquely rises. That's the earthly phase. That's the slaughter phase and also the resurrection phase because he is unique among priests that he offers himself 
and he's both priest and victim and rises from the dead. But ah, wait, there's more. Because he takes the blood of himself, and what does he do? Does he go into a sanctuary made by hands? No, he ascends into the sanctuary made, not made by hands, into heaven itself, as the letter to the Hebrews says so well, Michael. He ascends into a heavenly sanctuary and intercedes for us now. It says that in Hebrews 9 about how he mm -hmm. takes out the blood of goats and calves but his own, but then he intercedes for us now. It's like it's an ongoing reality. It says elsewhere in Hebrews that Hebrews 8, a priest has, you know, as it says in Hebrews, what does a priest do? A priest offers gifts and sacrifices. Okay, Jesus died once for all. Sure, we're not saying he dies again. But wait a second, once for all is not just that he died once and that's it, but that the sacrifice, once for all in a more profound sense, the gift that keeps on giving, mm -hmm. it is ever before the Father. This sacrifice is always going on in heaven. That's why the letter to the Hebrews can say Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. He must have something to offer. Well, if he has must, must have something to offer, it's a once for all sacrifice. Gee, then it must be that that sacrifice, because there's no other sacrifice, because if there's some other sacrifice, then that sacrifice can't really be once for all. It's inadequate. But if he's got something to offer, it means that that sacrifice continues. And indeed, he holds his priesthood permanently. There's only one sacrifice, so somehow that sacrifice continues. It makes perfect sense in light of the Day of Atonement because he is everywhere the Father in terms of as the priest in the heavenly sanctuary reminding the Father, so to speak, I speak figuratively in merely human terms so we can understand it better, but he's, he's, uh, right, he's always there reminding the Father, so to speak, of what he did on our behalf yes. in fulfilling the Father's plan. So that's everybody's this beautiful communion between the Father and the Son, and it's going on in heaven. You know, that cloud of witnesses that they talk about uh, in, in the letter of the Hebrews, we become present to that at the Mass. It's like, wow. So we see that the sacrifice of the Mass is... Um, not just Calvary in terms of the, that Jesus died once for all, but that it culminated in everlasting glory. So if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, mm -hmm. Mass isn't about sacrificing Christ again or you know, crucifying him again, yes. which if we focus too much on his death, people might get that misunderstanding. But rather, we are, you know, you remember that uh, the ancient phoenix bird, the myth mythical phoenix yes. bird? Some people have that idea of the Mass. You know, he dies and he rises from his ashes. It's like, oh my goodness. Will Jesus die and rise again today at the Mass? Some people might look at it. I'm not trying to be irreverent, but that's how some people look at the Mass. Right. And that's just misguided. We don't think Jesus dies and rises again uh, at every Mass. No, but rather, it's the sun analogy. The sun analogy is what do we do? The sun is always going on outside of our solar system. We become present to our life, that life-giving reality, life-giving reality in terms of providing energy and keeping us alive temporally in the God's created order. The sun's rather important. Sun goes out, we go out, we die. And, but the sun, even though we don't see it, we become present to that reality every day. Mm -hmm. what, relative to us, it's rising in the east. So the sun is always going on. Well, similarly, the mass is our window onto heaven, whereby that sacrifice is before the Father always. What's new at every mass is our participation, so that when we come to mass, it's like we're getting that window onto eternity. We're participating in that reality. It's always going on in heaven, so that... If we see the mass in that light, we are what, what is new is not it's, 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 what is new is that our participation in that one sacrifice that is always going on. Not that there is a new sacrifice, but whether we are participating and God is offering, allowing us to offer anew that one sacrifice to represent mm -hmm. that one sacrifice. And in that light, the words of the Lord's prayer: "Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven." Nowhere are those words more profoundly fulfilled in the Mass because nothing is greater that we can do on earth 
than to offer that one perfect sacrifice of Christ, which is the source and summit of the whole Christian life. Source because it's that sacrifice which redeemed us and gives us the possibility of salvation. Summit because it's the foretaste, pun intended, of the reality of heaven mm-hmm. and the heavenly banquet. So it's well talked about in the book of Revelation. And it's that foretaste because one day those sacramental veils will fall away and we will be face-to-face with God in that perfect, wonderful communion. But if we see the Mass in this reality, and if we can hook into it and say, we ever have any doubts, I like Father George Runder says, the reason that the saints are so ignored is because it's all true. You know, like a lot of people don't want to be reminded outside of the church that they'll get, because the saints are a reminder mm-hmm. that it's true, and if we pay attention to them, then we're going to have to act like them, and that means we're going to have to die to ourselves. And the, the thing about the saints, what can we say about all of them? Great love of the Eucharist. They understood that if you want to have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then become a Catholic and be a Catholic on Christ's terms, which is means to die yourself and to have that life which only he can give and to become more and more like him. And there's no better way to do that than to participate in the Mass regularly and to receive the Eucharist uh-huh. regularly and, when necessary, to get the sacrament of reconciliation so that we can grow in holiness in the process. And uh, that's, that's, that's a wonderful means by which... We grow in holiness because we experience the merciful love of God. And what is the sacrifice of the Mass? What is the biblical story of the Mass about, Michael? But the fact that we have a merciful God who died for us and who wants to, who, so we can be reconciled to him. The whole thing of the Mass is a reminder of what he did for us and how he wants to let mm-hmm. us share in exactly. his love. But mercy, mercy, it's a tough thing because... To, to receive, to want mercy and to receive mercy is to, is to recognize the need that we need mercy. That is, that we are sinners and we can't do it on our own and that we are sinners and we have things to confess and things to change our lives. But praise God that he is there to remind us that he's always there to pick us up. And if we realize that, then we can become like those saints and, and um, be those witnesses because I'm sure, you know, for your own life, Oftentimes it's that, that personal witness that can get people in the door of the church because they're saying, wow, that's something, there's something different about that person. Mm-hmm. If we can become a gospel to other people, then they are more likely to take a closer look at the church. Uh, unfortunately, yes. if they see Catholics who don't know the Mass or aren't living reverently, then that can be a stumbling block for them, unfortunately. So all these things, and when we think about it, it's so biblical in the letter that he mm-hmm. uses is important, the gospels are important. If we look at this, and we see it in light of history and how the church has existed for 2,000 years now, um, quite almost 2,000 years, if we go back to the day of our, our Lord and uh, yes. when he founded the church, um, that if we were a mere human institution, God help us, we'd be out of business a long, long time ago. <laughs> no seriously, doubt. No, I agree. It, and it, I mean, from the problems from within to the problems from without. Unfortunately, when people see things and scandals, mm-hmm. they, they too oftentimes generalize from the particular. What I mean is that they'll see some experience at their parish, some scandal, some priest or layman or whoever did something, and they say, ah, this can't be God's church. Well, you remember, in the Twelve Apostles, Judas betrayed our Lord, God of mercy. And the fact is, we've got to remember, to whom shall we go? Because if we start going to some other place that Christ didn't found, then we're going to, even if people are Christian, we're going to mm-hmm. an institution that was not founded by Jesus Christ. So we need to stick with the church precisely because Jesus 
said so and did so. I mean, I imagine a lot of Israelites were scandalized oh, back yeah. in the day in the old covenant times, and they might wanted to leave my goodness, you know, straying into paganism, offering children to, uh, uh-huh. to God Moloch, the, the pagan God Moloch. Sounds familiar today and what's going on in America uh-huh. and elsewhere about with abortion. But we need to realize, as, as they did back then, is, hey, it's not because this person or that person or that group are so holy in themselves, but rather that Israel was founded by God and God was faithful and he was most faithful in sending his son so that not to abolish the old but to fulfill it in the new and then the new Israel with 12 apostles who are the analog to the 12 uh, tribes of Israel and that you had a king, uh, not just King David, but the son of David, Jesus Christ, the king of kings, who needs no successor because he's God. And you not only have a prime minister as you did in the old covenant and talked about, for example, in Isaiah 15, uh, 22 verses 15 to 25, but you have a prime minister, and that was Peter, the first one, who binds and looses, and uh, he has successors because remember we see in uh, in in the Acts of the Apostles, yes. uh, Matthias replaces Judas and let another one take his place. Well, gee, if someone's going to succeed Judas, how much more important Peter because he's the one who has the keys to the kingdom. And and mm-hmm. uh, I remember, and it's a different apologetic discussion when people say. Well, Jesus, you know, yeah, he poured that foundations. It was a, an independent Baptist um, guy, independent Baptist, who sadly think that the church is you know, the tool of the devil, and um, kind of like the Bob Jones University, unfortunately, that they have this um, uh, really distorted view of what the church is. But this guy was saying, you know, you don't keep pouring the foundation mm-hmm. after after the building is built. I go, yeah, you don't keep pouring the foundation, but anybody in construction knows you don't yank out the foundation either. You build upon the foundation, and part of building on the foundation is to have successors, and that's the way God set it up, because what happens? Hey, who's in more need of, of leadership? God, God established human leadership, but leadership nonetheless. People back in the day of Jesus' time were people a thousand or two thousand years removed, when they're, it's harder to understand and there may be disagreements about what did they really mean when they said this in the Bible, or what did they, the apostles right. say this sacred tradition? Well, we need them all the more so today, and all the more so <laughs> if you're going to build on that foundation, you want to have human leadership, because God has always used divinely founded human leadership throughout salvation history, whether it was Noah, whether it was Abraham, Moses, mm-hmm. King David, he's always worked through them. And... Uh, Lo and behold, surprise, surprise, um, he does it with, uh, with the New Covenant as well. And you've got to have human leadership, not because necessarily every pope is the greatest saint, or every priest is perfect, or every you know, director of religious education. No, because this is the Church of Jesus founded, right. and we stick with it. You Absolutely. don't jump out of the, you know, pick your analogy, you, you don't jump out of the frying pan into the fire. You stick with the Church precisely because it's true, because Christ founded it. And, and that doesn't mean these scandals aren't, you know, scandalous, and, and people can be led astray. But we keep we keep faithful as one does in a family. You 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 know you work to restore things because that's what God wants us to do. Because to whom shall we go? We go someplace else. Then we're on our own. And as I like to say, sadly, everyone believes in a pope. It's not necessarily <laughs> the correct one. It's true. Yeah. Someone's got to interpret that Bible. And whether you put it in some TV preacher or a combination of yourself, your local pastor, and something else, right? Somebody, somebody has to interpret that Bible. Somebody does, and you know what? They end up building tradition because guess what? That's not exactly in the Bible, 
or not so clearly in the Bible, and when people disagree, that's why we have 30-plus denominations, 30,000-plus denominations today. Exactly. Become, someone's trying to do what the Pope and the bishops in union teaching with the magisterium. They're trying to fulfill a role that God has established others to take that role in. So, unfortunately, in, in, in doing so, they have a, a pale imitation, and we can respect them as brothers and sisters in Christ, but we want to say, come home. Come home to the fullness. Mm -hmm. And don't let Catholics who are not fervent be your stumbling block, because you know what? That's not the reality of the church. It, it, it is sad that that exists, but don't let that be a stumbling block. If Do it because the church is true, and you yes. don't necessarily, <laughs> rather you don't, uh, absolutely judge the church simply by um, some members that you may know in your local area, you judge it by whether Christ founded it or not. And when we do that, we see that the church is the church of history. And at the heart of it is that sacrifice of the Mass, which gives us the life, which uh, leads us to eternal life. Very good. And we just covered the entirety of Christian history in 20 minutes. I'm impressed. <laughs> Thank you very much, Tom. And uh, I have one. Uh, one quick question I do have to ask sure. uh, regarding sure. the Mass and the sacrifice of the Mass. I guess there's always been a question of uh, why, if we're doing this, if you know Christ had only done it once, why do we mm. keep doing it day in, day out, and why do we say he will come yeah. again? Are we doing this in anticipation of something as well, or is there a present moment? Sure. Yeah, you know, first thing, why are we doing it again? It's, it's, you know what, we all need to be reminded for our benefit. Yes. That's why we had the Passover regularly. And it was a yearly thing also with the other sacrifices because we need to be reminded of the reality so that we don't go astray. So God's doing it for our benefit, number one, to remind us that he loves us and that he provides all that we need and so uh, we don't get led astray. You know, I'm just talking about the sower that, and the different mm -hmm. seeds that fell on path and people, oh, they, they sprouted up for lack of roots, they withered quickly. Excuse me, and so we, we, we need to be reminded. And then secondly, it's also that... that that whole thing of anticipation. It's the summit because we're reminded it points us in our trials, and those trials here on earth can be rather challenging. It's a reminder that we're, we are not citizens primarily of this earth but of heaven, so it, it keeps us focused on the ultimate goal. It's not the Mass and, the, and Christianity is not, and religion is not mm -hmm. the opiate of the Masses, as Karl Marx said. No, it allows us to have the life and life abundantly, not only here, thus the lives of the saints, and like a Maximilian Kolbe could take a death camp and turn it into a prayer sanctuary uh, back in Auschwitz when they were so used to hearing cries of uh, screams of despair coming out of the starvation bunker. He turns around the man who should have been dead first with one defective lung having experienced tuberculosis. He transforms that into a prayer sanctuary. Maximilian Kolbe, a great saint. And, and just showing that he had peace amidst just a terrible, you know, modern-day metaphor for hell, which is a starvation bunker. Yes. We see that, so we see that abundant life lived in the lives of the saints today and our own lives, but then we also see that this something more, and it's pointing towards us, and that's the summit, and that's why it's that foretaste of heaven where we will have that perfect communion of God with the veils, mm -hmm. sacramental veils, fall away, and we will have that ultimate communion. So we're reminded of it, it sustains us, and it points us forward to our ultimate goal, which is heavenly communion with the with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And with that, Mr. Nash, this has been a fantastic interview. I've never learned so much, actually, about the Old Testament talking about the Eucharist today. And I do. Well, it's an honor and blessing to be with you, Michael. And if people like to learn more, you know, it's, it's published by Sophia Institute Press, the Biblical Roots of Mass, and they can 
get it online at the Sophia site and other places. And Absolutely. Bookstores and online, and I hope they uh, do, and I hope they, more importantly than reading my book, that they can share the biblical story of the Mass with others and so that others can partake of that life and have it abundantly. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll put links up on CatholicExchange.com on our show notes so you can pick up the books, all of you who are listening today. I strongly recommend it. I'm still getting through it myself, but it really is a grand tour of the Old Testament and the New Testament by looking for the Eucharist. And once more, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us here on the Catholic Exchange Podcast. Thank you very much, Michael. Good to be with you and your audience. And um, if I can ever be of service again, I'd be honored to do so. Oh, well, we'll definitely take you up on that. Thank you. All right. God bless you, brother. You be well. You too, Thomas.